Let's begin. <clears throat> Jared. Are you ready? Well, again, let me begin this way. Thank you so much for being here. As we continue the study of the Word of God, this morning we're continuing in our fast-moving pace through the epistle to the Ephesians by the Apostle Paul. So we're in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're taking the second half, if you would, of the chapter and dealing with these issues. This morning we'll begin with verse 11 in chapter 2 of Ephesians. As we do this, let me reiterate our appreciation for you being a part of the class, for being undergirded with and infused with and being built into and submitting to and walking in and believing and everything else of the Word of God. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you. Father, we thank you that we are not here just among ourselves apart from you. Father, but you are with us by your Spirit. Father, we don't ask you to be here because you said you are with us. You said you never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus said that where two or more gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. And so, Father, we acknowledge and we thank you for being with us. Not only in this class, not only on a Sunday morning in worship and listening to the word proclaimed from the pulpit, but you're with us every moment of our lives. When we're awake, when we're sleeping, when we're working, when we're daydreaming, when we are whatevering. Father, thank you for this continuing intimate fellowship that you have brought us into at the very highest cost to you taking our sin placing upon your son nailing him to a cross pouring out upon him your holy and just wrath because of sin because of rebellion so that in his death you declare us who were in him to be forgiven and then you clothe us as the father did in Luke 15 with the robe of Jesus righteousness not ours but the righteousness which you give to us as the father gave the robe to his son thus declaring him to be accepted into the family as a son. Father, thank you that you have done all of this in order to adopt us as children into your forever family so that we forever may enjoy the fellowship and the intimacy with you, of you, in all eternity. Father, what an awesome, awesome gospel. What an awesome work. What an astonishing work. So, Father, as we continue this morning looking at the effects of the gospel, as they apply to us personally and practically on a daily basis and in our fellowshipping together, 
Father, we ask you to cause your word, not only to get into our minds, but into our hearts, really renovating, changing us. So, Father, that today and tomorrow we will walk differently because of the active cooperation of your Spirit in us as we walk with you, as we join you in your work, as you empower us. We praise your name for this. For it all goes to one purpose, to the praise of the glory of your name. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue, and we're going to break up the rest of the verses in chapter 2 from verses 11 to 22. We're going to break them up from 11 to 18, and then we'll deal with the second, if you would, part of this structure this morning. Ephesians. One of these ladies will help you. Hand it to Verla. She'll show you right where that is. This lady knows everything about the Bible there is to know. So verses 11 to 18. You remember what we studied last week. Last week we studied that God has united us to himself, which is the foundational issue and the foundational activity of everything that we have. Everything we have and everything we are and everything we ever will be is a result of God having joined us into himself in Christ. You remember in the beginning chapter of chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, when did this happen? When was this inaugurated? When was this planned? When was this, if you would, thought up? I don't, although I don't like to say it that way, but it is the eternal purpose of God before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, each one of us who are in Christ, our names, we ourselves, all about us, Everything about us was in the heart and the mind and in the purpose of God. Everything. I mean, that's amazing. Nothing about us was not there. Everything about our life, everything about our past, our present, our future, everything. Why? So that God, through us, would be manifestly praised for the glory of his mercy and of his kindness and of his grace in saving us who were a rebellious people, who had repudiated the name of God, the name of the Lord Jesus, who had rejected, and yet he included us into his family. So we were united to God in Christ. Verses 1 to 10, chapter 2, talking about how God has accomplished this work that he set out in verses 3 to 14 in chapter 1, verses 1 to 10, is, if you would, the first step of the process. Although we don't like to use the word steps, it's easy for us to understand it that way. So this morning, having united us to himself, God now unites us to one another. Now, it is a joy to be united to God, amen? The problem is that we have to be united to one another. And I don't say this facetiously because this is a radical problem in the church. United to one another. As surely as we are intimately and forever united to Christ, to God through Christ, we are as infinitely and forever united to one another. There is no such thing 
as you have a personal responsibility before God, and that's where it ends. We have a personal slash corporate responsibility before God. And every one of us will be judged, not just for what I personally did, thought, you know, my words, my thought words and deeds, but also how I walked as a believer in concert with the rest of the church where God has placed us to be a corporate expression. Why the insistence? Why the accentuation? Why the necessity? Why the passion for community? Why? Because this is who God is. He is a community within Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the church community, one another, intimately and forever fellowshipping together in any and every level that God will allow and require is an expression of who God is in Himself. This is the reason why it is imperative for us to live differently. Now, I know I'm like everybody else. I struggle with, <clears throat> I'm not sure if I want to go there, I don't want to do that, you know, and all that. But I have to get past this issue of me, my, and my individual, and be thinking much more collectively. And we as a church must be thinking much more collectively. Why? Because God, if you would, is a collective God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Could we, some kind of way, um, ask the elders to make School of the Word four hours in the morning? I mean, I, I'm restricted by this 45-minute thing. I, I just feel compelled. We need to have four hours every single Sunday. Anybody say amen? amen? Bill, you heard that? Let's bring it up in the next elders' meeting. Four hours. So God unites us to one another to form into us a community on earth, the church. Do you begin to understand the significance of the church when we speak like this? It's not just a gathering of a whole bunch of people singing a song or two. This is the very life of God on earth reflecting His heavenly reality to the principalities and powers and to all creation. So God says, if you want to know who I am and what I look like, look at the church. Look at the individual slash corporate gathering of my people. That's where I am. And that's where I am manifestly displayed in my glory. It's not just somewhere out there. It's in this room. Look around. We said this before. Do you want to see the effects of the cross? Do you want to see the power of the resurrection? Do you want to see what the Trinity looks like, feels like, experiences? Look around. This is a visible manifestation of who God is. And how God is. So Paul, you see, reveals the makeup of the church as containing both Jews and Gentiles. In verses 11 to 18, Paul assures the Gentiles that they also are a part of the family of God along with their Jewish brothers. All of these people are together in Christ. All of us together in Christ. So he begins in verse 11. Watch how it begins. Look at verse 11. He says, therefore. Now, Paul is about to describe their position in Christ. And as he's about to tell them about their position in Christ, he stops and he has to kind of remind them of how these Gentiles were considered by their Jewish brethren. Therefore, wait, wait, before I tell you 
I need to let you make sure you remember how the Jews considered you Gentiles. So give me a moment before I get into my material. And I'm going to get into it in verse 12, but give me a moment in verse 11. Therefore, what? I need to tell you something. Because we need to understand the dynamics of what is really going on in the body of Christ. We need to be aware of the real dynamics. Not ignore them and pretend and be, you know, put them under a car. We need to be aware of the problems that exist in us getting along together, sitting next to one another, fellowshipping together. This is a problem. Have you ever looked at church in the morning? People don't want to sit next to one another. May I give you a revelation that may startle you? I didn't read this in the Bible, but I know it's true. There won't be a single vacant chair at the banquet table of the Lamb. Amen. You are going to be sitting next to somebody, and they're going to be sitting next to you. Can you imagine that? Because we say typically in the church, when we get about 80%, it begins to become uncomfortable to people, and they begin, this ought not to be. The reason it is, is because we are rejecting or not embracing what God has done in Christ for us as a community. Are you with me this morning about this? I haven't even gotten into the meat of the matter. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to do a better job. He says, therefore, wait, let me tell you something. He said, remember that at one time you Gentiles, <clears throat> now we could use this as everybody of a big different background in here. Don't you remember one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, you know, Every group has a name for it. Now, I don't, I'm not going to say the names. I personally don't care. It doesn't matter to me what you call me or what you think of me or what I could give. You know, the Italians have a name. The blacks have a name. The Jews, we all have names for everybody. The Chinese, are you with me on this? So when he says the uncircumcision, he's given, they, they had a derogatory name for you, brother. You know that N word? Well, this was the U word. This was the U word. Well, that doesn't sound bad, uncircumcision. Yeah, but just let me use the word nigger. And everybody goes, oh, oh, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. <clears throat> oh, but you see, this word doesn't bother us, but boy, that word. Right, James? Yes. He said, this is what's happened. That's how they used to consider you. And he says, the problem is some of them still do in the church. You're called uncircumcision by what is supposedly the circumcision to Jewish people, which is made by the hands of flesh. In other words, Paul said, they're calling you something that really doesn't matter. This is something of the flesh, and it shouldn't be in the house of God. Why? Because God is spirit, and he's changed all of us by the spirit. These fleshly designations have no place in the church. So considering the deep pride and prejudice of the Jewish believers, Paul gets into racism right away. Isn't he great? You see, we don't like the idea of dealing with racism because we may offend somebody. I am here to tell you that I will offend you as much as I can in order to let's root out the racism that is existent in every one of us to some level. All right. He deals with the pride and prejudice of the Jewish believers toward the Gentiles. Paul wants the Gentile believers to recognize God's amazing grace in uniting them as brothers in Christ with all of these people, this collection of a motley group into a united group in Christ, the children of God. This is what the church is. Verses 11 and 12. 
Now that he said that, Paul continues and he reminds them of their sinful past. <clears throat> of their sinful past. Remember the sinful past, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3? He says, remember that you were. Could you, in your Bibles, begin to circle and underline these verbs? The verb present and the verb past is significant with the Apostle Paul. When he says you were, what does that mean, Eddie? You ain't no more. It means you was at one time, but no more. Were means what? Finished where? In the past. Put away, never to be brought up again before God by God. He says you were at that time when? In Adam. Before you were saved. Before you were saved. In God's sight, this is different, but we're talking about in a understanding of when I got saved. You were at that time, you were what? Separate from Christ. This is where all of us lived. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, from the way that God upon the earth was proclaiming his name in Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. <clears throat> the great covenant that God has made with his people, beginning with, actually with Adam, but, you know, accentuated in Abraham all the way through. And you had no hope, and you were without God in the world. All he's doing is reiterating what he's already said. Now, he's already said this. When you read Paul... Isn't it interesting that Paul, why does he keep reminding them of the dark days of their past? Why does he keep beating the drum of their sin? Can't you get off the subject, Paul? <clears throat> Every time he does it, he does it because he wants to show the darkness of their past in relation to the brilliance of, the, of Christ's salvation for us. The better we know our past, the more we understand what it was, how it was, how the effect was, where we were going as a result. The more we realize the depth of our hideousness before Christ and the glory of His grace, it makes the glory of His grace even brighter, the more it will motivate us toward humility, the more it will motivate us toward submission, the more it will empower us by that same grace. This is what I have been saved from. Therefore, I want to encourage you don't be too shy be polite and sweet just the same way as i am but don't be shy about painting a hideous picture of a person's sin one of the main problems i have in the church is i personally have not seen enough fear of sin even in a believer's life there's not enough fear of god in us and as a result we allow sin to continue we, we don't deal with it immediately and radically and we just kind of go along with it and it's not we need to fear not that I'm gonna be thrown out of heaven but this God still is a consuming fire and sin still is a problem in our midst the contrast between the bleakness and the brightness should deepen our appreciation of and devotion to the response of God remember Romans 2 4 the Apostle is saying what I mean he's just buried these people in their sin in Romans 1 18 to the end of the chapter verse 32 and it begins chapter 2 as he begins to now bury the Jews in their sin and in the midst of it he said don't you know it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance I'm gonna bury you in your sin but in the midst of it 
I'm going to give you the best hand of salvation you ever did see. And once you see the hideousness and the depth of, depth of, of, of whatever of your sin, you're going to grab that hand. You're going to grab the hand. And it's going to be a wonderful and glorious hand. Verses 13 to 16. What did he say? You were. Do you remember what he said? Did you see you were in verse 11? Do you see that? Now what does it say in verse 13? But now. Circle the word now. What does now mean? What does now mean, Marie? Now. What does now mean? Not in heaven, but when? Scott, when? Right now. You see, if I tell you I am a righteous man, I am and I'm not. In the sight of God, I am wearing the robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, do I still sin? Yes. You see, God has justified us. He's declared us as what? As if, as if we had never sinned. He's declared that. He's made a declaration. That means I am no longer guilty of unforgiven sin. So God now calls me a son in the house, a saint, a justified man. Never in the Bible does God call me a sinner. It's not there. Paul relates to himself as the chief of sinners, dealing with how he is in his daily actions, but not, not before God. His position is saint. Our position is sanctified. Our activity on an earthly level very much is sinning. So we have a dual thing. You know, quite frankly, I have somewhat of a problem with people calling us sinners. I can understand if they're talking about what I do, but we must make sure in order to understand the work of God, we are constituted before God forever as his sons, children, forgiven, justified, saints, cleansed of sin. You know it's humbling because folks think, well, if we call ourselves sinners, that humbles us. No, it doesn't humble me. What humbles me is to recognize that even though I still sin, God, His mercy, His kindness, His forbearance, His patience still works with me as a forgiven, accepted son. That's humbling. That's humbling. You were, but now in Christ. Paul affirms their present position in Christ. Thank God for the but nows. Amen? Amen. But now what? You were brought near. You were far off, but what? Now you're real close. You were aliens. You were disconnected. You didn't have hope. Now you're real close. The recurring message of the Bible is that sinners, those who are far off, are brought near to God through the sacrificial death of Christ. You are brought near how? By the blood of Christ. This is the gospel message from Genesis 3.21 all the way through to the end in, Gen in Revelation 19.13. And really to the end because the rest of it is just a result of this. There is only one means of salvation. That is the shedding of the blood of Jesus. Jesus has saved his people. He does not make, as I said this last week, Jesus does not make salvation available for his people. That is not the truth. He makes it actual. He doesn't say, I'm going to die, and I just hope that someone by faith, 
accepts me. He doesn't do that. He saves his people in his death and resurrection. And then the Holy Spirit goes out and he gathers those whom God has saved in Christ. Can you say amen? If it weren't this way, none of us would be here today. See, I'm so glad this is God's economy. I'm so glad God took the initial decision. What what word did I say? What decision? Initial decision. Not the decision, the initial decision. Out of my hands, Mike, and gave it to the Holy Spirit. So mine now, as God has worked that work in me, Laura, is to receive what God has fully accomplished in the death, resurrection, ascension, glorification, giving of His Holy Spirit. We're not only brought near, we're reconciled. Now before we get into the word reconcile, think this way among ourselves. You don't have to raise your hand. If you want to, it's up to you, but I'm not asking you to. How many of us in this room have ought? You know what ought means? Angst, anger, bitterness, problems of disagreement. Not just you and I don't agree on something, we're still friends. I'm sorry, that thing that begins to create a separation. How many of us have ought at any level against anyone else in the church? You know, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you want to, that's up to you. It's one of the major problems in the church. Ought with one another. I don't like the way you said that, brother. I have a problem with you. I don't agree with you. So I'm moving away from you because we don't agree. I don't like the way you teach, so whatever, ought. My wife and I have, my, my, my daughter my, and I, my son and I, my, my, my friend, whoever it is, ought. Think about some, anyone in your life in the church, in the body of Christ, as we go into this next reconciliation. And ask yourself, since God has done what he's done for us, in us, and is doing through us at the highest cost, dare we allow any level of activity of ought to occur for any reason among us? Dare we reconcile the restoration of a broken or damaged relationship? Now you know what ought is? Yeah, well, you know, that, you don't know what. That, that, that. <clears throat> Listen to what he says, verses 14 to 16. For he himself is our peace. We're talking about Christ. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And that just got finished praying for this a moment ago, having cheated and looked in my notes. <laughs> Right, Nettie? Christ broke down the wall of separation, not only between us and God, but between us and us at the very highest place. 
by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinance that he might create in himself, in, in, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, one new man, one new body of people in place of the two, so that making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, the highest price for the greatest work. You see, Jesus is now our peace treaty. I mean, there's so much to talk about this, but we've got to go through it quicker. Jesus is now our peace treaty with God. What does Romans 5.1 say? Somebody should know that. Having been what? Justified by faith, we now have peace with God. The war is over. In Christ, because of the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, Jesus himself is God's peace treaty through the shedding of his blood. He is our peace. That peace that exists within God, the peace that exists among the three members of the Trinity, the peace that God has within himself about himself. That's the peace. My peace, Jesus said, I give to you. The peace that God has within himself in this community about himself. Do you understand what the peace is? It's not just putting up with something. It's not ignoring something. It is a genuine camaraderie, co-fellowshipping, intimacy of love. That's peace. Anything and everything of contention and disagreement and strife and all of that stuff is completely alien to and not a part of who God is in himself. And that's the peace that God gives to us when we're saved. And that's the peace that should be functioning among us as a church. No matter what the attitude, no matter what the personality, no matter what the thing that's going on as believers, this is the peace that must prevail, that we must work for, if you would, fight for, strive for, so that the peace of God in the church, who God is in himself, may be declared to this world in a very dramatic and manifested way. The peace of God, his own peace that he has within himself, about himself. You see, often we, we disassociate these words peace and love and joy and satisfaction. We disassociate this from God. All of this is about who God is in himself. It's not just something out there floating around, the love of God, the joy of God. It is God himself. And he is recreating, reforming, fashioning into us his very self. Jesus is not only the peace treaty with God, he's also the peace treaty with one another, with us. He's not only, well, let me say it this way, in Christ, man's war with God, I don't know whether this is in your notes, man's war with God and within himself and with one another is forever over. We had a war with God, there was a war in myself, and I was warring against others. Three levels or three activities if you would of the same war right warring with God he was I was his enemy warring within myself because of that war with God 
And because of that war with God, warring in myself, therefore warring with one another. You wonder why people don't get along? There's only one reason why we don't get along with one another. It's because of the warfare that's inside of me. Not what's wrong with thee. It's me. It's not thee. With one another is over. We from enemies to friends, from outcasts to sons, from a scattered people to the people of God. You see, in Christ, all are united as one new man. Jesus, this is Jesus' prayer in John 17, that they may be one, Father, in us, as we are one, that they may also be one. And when Jesus says that they may be one, he's not talking about some kind of way we're going to have to make this real. Positionally, in Christ, we are one, if you would, in relationship and fellowship with God. We partake of the divine nature. Remember 2 Peter 1.4. We don't become divine, but we participate in that divine nature. So Jesus isn't talking about the position. He's talking about the practice we must fight for living out the reality of what's true in the heavenlies. The battleground on earth is the outworking of what's true forever in the heavens. So what we are experiencing now in our lives and among us and within this whole context of dealing with sin and Satan and the world and relationships, all this is, if you would, is the outworking, the battleground, the coming to the greater reality that will be manifested fully on the day of resurrection of that which is true in the heavens. It's already true. It's going to happen fully. But we are progressively getting there in a manifested way in our time frame. Do you, do you understand this? We're walking in that which has been accomplished fully to be manifested at the resurrection of the dead when we all get to heaven, if you would. But today, we're in the process of God applying and bringing forth this reality in a greater way called sanctification, transformation, maturity, various names. You see, in Christ, we're all made into one new man. There's a, I'm not going to quote this scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 20. Paul says what? You've been made new. How many of you remember, no, if any man be in Christ, is a what? New. New what? New creation. Why? Because we're in Christ. We're in Christ. And because you are a new creation, What? You have been reconciled to God through the death of his son, Paul says. And because of that, we are ambassadors of God. What does that mean? We come as representatives of God, of the God who has reconciled us through the very death of his son. Therefore, he says, therefore what? Be reconciled. Be reconciled. Let this work that God has done in uniting us to himself in Christ <clears throat> begin to be permeating among us we should leave this morning having repented of any and every ought against another brother or sister in the church and determined by the power of the holy spirit cooperating with the will of god and the grace of god we should do everything we can our responsibility is to do what we are told to do to go and mend these relationships First, giving thanks to God for his reconciling us to himself 
in Christ at the very highest level. To not do so is a repudiation of God's reconciling us to himself in Christ. It is a slap in the face of God. So if there's somebody or some you know, person or group that you have with and you have, you just decide this, God, I'm not going to do it. I just soon knock your teeth out than to do this. I reject your reconciliation because I won't do it. Well, I would never say that. You're saying it loudly and clearly when we refuse to do that. So you're already saying it. You're just not using the right words. Your words you think are prettier. To God, they're worse. How did he do it? He killed the hostility. What is that? At the cross, Jesus took upon himself all of the penalty of the broken law. Remember the ordinance and the commands and so on? So that, and had the broken law that had created a wall of hostility. There was a wall of hostility between us and God because of the broken law. Between God and man, and man and man. It created hostility. It created barriers. Colossians 2.14 tells you that. Nailed it to the cross. All these things that are written against us. This, you know, document, if you would. The certificate of debt. This is what we owe God. Death, hell, destruction was what we had earned from God from our wages of sin. But Christ paid it all. Christ paid it all. And God nailed it to Christ, with Christ, to the cross. So that Colossians 2.13 says, having forgiven us. What? I can't hear the word. I can't hear your words. Oh, come off it. If you just inherit a million dollars today, you'd be saying more than a million. You'd be saying, how much of our sin has he nailed to the cross? All of our sin. Having forgiven us all. None remain. None remain. None remain. None remain unforgiven. None remain unforgiven. Are you getting it? How many remain unforgiven? None. None remain. This is scandalous. Where is my work? Where are my good deeds to help? Where is the merit that I pile up by my good deeds? There is merit. There is good deed. But it rests in one man, Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad? God had a better way. We'll look at that word wisdom in 310 when we get there next week. The next time we're not sure of our relationship with God in Christ, let us remember these words. There is now no more hostility between God and us. What is Romans 8, 1? There is therefore now. There is therefore what? Now. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And not only is there no more hostility between us and God. That's the good news. I'm glad. No more hostility. No more hostility between us and God. Yeah, but... I don't like you, though. You see, I, I'm, I'm so glad God has eliminated, Vogel, the hostility between us. I mean, between me and God and you and God. I just don't like you. I don't like you. See, I can glory and revel in the fact God has united me and reconciled me to himself in Christ. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, praise God, praise God. I just don't like you then stop saying praise God, put your arm down, go be reconciled, and then let the reconciliation be your true worship to God. It does not work. We're lying. We're lying about 
God. Are you getting this today? Husbands and wives and children and friends and relatives and whoever it is in the church. It's a monumental problem. 17 to 18. Wow, I've got to move. The preaching of the gospel is God's means of applying the finished work of Christ. I'm just going to go right through that. We all have equal access to God. Look what it says. In Christ, and Christ came in, preached peace to you. That's the gospel who were far off. Remember those, the Gentiles and the Jews, and peace to those who were near, the Jews and the Gentiles. And through him we both may have access in one spirit to the Father. We are not only reconciled to God, but we are also in Christ. We have all of us have equal access to God. There is no such thing as one believer more important than another. Galatians 3.28 says we are all one in Christ. We are all totally significant in Christ to God. May I repeat that? We are all what? What? We are all what? Oh, I didn't say that. I said we are all totally significant to God in Christ. Totally? Oh, I, don't, I can understand the word significant, but don't do too much. We are all totally significant to God in Christ. Can you say amen? I am absolutely, totally, and forever significant to God in Christ. Am I pushing the envelope too much for you? Have I gone beyond what God himself has said? The only offense here is to our flesh and to our sin. Don't think too highly of yourself. Our problem in Christ is this. We don't think highly enough of what God has done and who we are in Christ. You see, that's our problem. I'm convinced one of our major problems is we don't think highly enough of what God has done in us and who we are in Christ. I'm not talking about the flesh. I'm talking about the attitude, you know, the world. I'm talking about in Christ. We don't have nearly the exalted understanding of who we are in Christ to this great and glorious God of ours. Read the Word of God. We're going to take these bodies are going to be exalted bodies after the similitude of the body of Christ. He has taken us from the lowest and placed us at the very highest place in Christ, with Christ ruling and reigning forever. We think too lowly of who we are in Christ. You understand my emphasis, the emphasis of the Bible, in Christ. And as it's being worked out, we're too low viewed. We're not heavenly minded enough. Nineteen to twenty-two, all united in church. See now, Paul brings his presentation to his grand finale. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, verse 19, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Notice it didn't say fellow sinners and whatever. Fellow citizens and saints who still sin, yes. You don't think I sin? Ask my wife. She'll tell you, last week I did something wrong. <laughs> well, I did. I didn't say that was the only thing I did wrong. I just said last week I did something wrong. You see, you may have misinterpreted that. We, why has God redeemed us? To unite us into the living community of God upon the earth, reflecting the divine community of the Trinity, the church, the body of Christ, the living temple. You see, God's eternal purpose and great joy. And this has created the foundation in verses 20 to 22, the foundation and construction of the church. 
God is building a living house. What? Christ is the foundation. Christ is the foundation. Christ is the foundation. And he uses the ministry of the apostles and prophets, this word of God now that is given to us through the various ministries of the church continuing, to pull this, the foundation on which the church is constructed. Christ, if you would, is being poured out in a visible way through the ministry where the church is being constructed. You see, the people of God, verses 21 and 22, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. In him you also are being built together, dwelling place for the Spirit of God. God's people are the building materials gathered and joined together by the general contractor of the Holy Spirit, being built into the living house of God, the place of God's dwelling. In here, my notes. First Thessalonians, I have, where is it, Bill? First Thessalonians 5.13? Oh, I, I didn't put the first. Oh, mine doesn't have, mine just has Thess, okay. First, okay, I'll make sure. So let me finish with this. Look around the room. You got white people in here and black people. Ooh. Oh, don't say that. You need to move out if you don't like me saying these things. You got Italians, Germans, French, Irish. There's just no telling what we have in this room. This is a motley crew. You even have a Japanese person in here. No telling what you are, Co. Mud. Spanish. God has eliminated in Christ all issues of racism. I believe racism is one of the most fundamentally destructive issues in the church. I don't think I put this in your, your notes, but write the word on your notes, S-K-I-N, skin. Write it down, S-K-I-N, skin. Racism. Right? The color of your skin. Racism. Now, put this word next to it. Take the K out of skin and rewrite that word. Take the K out of skin and let's see what you have. This church, I think, I think we're doing well in this area. See, the issue isn't skin, nor has it ever been skin. It's always been sin. We can't go on the basis of racism, color, ethnicity. It's sin. So when you're talking to people about the word and all that and they start talking about these issues, bring this up and make the issue what God makes it. Because in Christ, there is no such thing as skin. We don't know one another according to the flesh anymore. We know one another in Christ. No more reason for and toleration of any issue of racism. 
we are all joined together in Christ by the reconciliation of the uh, reconcil reconciling work of Christ at the cross. Don't let any ought begin to damage the revelation of what God has done in His Son. Next week we'll take chapter 3.